Live from the home office of Ag Solutions Network, it's the Ag Emerge Podcast. We're here to move the ag paradigm forward by helping you regenerate your soils using new ideas, research, and emerging technologies. Get ready to improve your soils, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm Kim Sheese. And I'm Monty Bottoms. And we're your hosts. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of the Ag Emerge podcast. Monty and I are excited to bring to you today some of the things that we've seen over this summer uh, as far as soil health and things that are happening in the industry. Uh, We've done quite a bit of traveling and attending events and meetings where we've really tried to glean a lot of great information for y'all to hear about and for us to discuss. So we're kind of giving this a little state of the union address of where we found things and would love to share all that information with you. So so if this is state of the union, Kim, is that something every time somebody says one sentence, the whole crowd has to stand up and clap and it takes, you know, two hours to listen to a 20 minute speech? Clearly, I'll be applauding you all yeah, day long. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> we don't need that. No, we just wanted to have kind of a discussion of, of some current events and, and what's going on in, in agriculture today and take a, take a break from abusing our guests, right, and just abuse ourselves in, in, in talking about uh, the latest trends. So, Well, one of the things that we started talking about um, a little bit before we, we went live here is... Um, really talking about so much of this regenerative ag process and people looking for answers. You know, you and I this summer have been to a lot of different events. Um, We hear a lot of questions from folks. And it's not that they're thinking, oh, there's a silver bullet. But in some regard, folks are looking for solutions that are a little more packaged. And... um, that doesn't really exist, does it? There's a there's a concept that you talk about. I'll let you talk about that a little bit. Well, it's uh, the principles and the practices. So the principles are are solid and and transfer uniformly across the globe, but the practices are always local, and the practices will vary even across the road from each other, depending on soil types, um, cropping system rotations, irrigation water availability. And, and all those kind of things. So um, the principles are solid. The, the five soil health principles, and I know on recent podcasts, we've tried to add a sixth and a seventh and an eighth and a ninth and those kind of things. But it, it still boils down to everything falls under the five umbrella principles. And, and the first is, is we have to start with minimizing soil disturbance, which was a foundation of what we started our company on, was to help farmers adopt Uh, minimum tillage, strip tillage, no tillage, the least amount of tillage they could for their individual scenario. And we realized that when we did that, we completely changed nutrient cycling in the soil. So broadcast nutrients applied way far ahead of when the crop is planted just are not viable when we go to these reduced disturbance or no disturbance uh, seeding systems. Probably no more clearly observed than this season that we had uh, on having nutrient application. Right. And we, we joked, uh, uh, I made that passing quip in a, a podcast episode that we had a few months ago when we were still raining and raining and raining. Uh, 
we were busy at the shop building the Noah's Ark, the second one. Uh, but no, we, I was happy to have my fertilizer where I knew it was, and it was in the tank right outside the shop. It wasn't in the field because there was a lot of uncertainty of what do we do with our nitrogen if it's been out there as fallen hydrous or if it had been out there as an early uh, weed and feed or what, what happens in those kind of scenarios if we have cover crops that turn into a jungle how do we how do we handle those things? And even in uh, you know Cal- most of our entire area was wet. So even in um, uh, Montana, when we can apply liquid nitrogen that's immediately available when that plant is growing in a shortened window versus relying on urea to become available. What do we do with California, where we've got a lot of uh, we can't just be doing all of our upfront nitrogen ahead of leaf out on almonds or uh, large amounts of P and K incorporated in the soil in produce and just hope that it'll, you know, still be there and, and not tied up with soil systems. So it's just, you know, starting with principle one is just basic. And, and really, we've been doing that for 20, 25 years. And um, for us, it's kind of old hat. Uh, but for some of the other folks, it's brand new. They haven't done it. And uh, right. Uh, we, we jokingly talk about after, especially with new members that are that come on board to help customers, that the first few years, it's everybody's kind of in the same boat, and they're all learning together. But then after a, an associate's been with us for, let's say, five years, they've got a customer that's been with them five years, and they're moving further down the soil health principles and getting more and more advanced. But then to back up to somebody who hasn't even done no-till, strip-till, you know, and starting at square one, that's that's hard. It's hard for the associate or it's hard for a farmer who's been doing these practices for 10, 20 years to relate back to someone who's still in the conventional ag paradigm. So um, there are some things that get lost in translation in, in adopting that first step, but, you know, that is the first step, minimizing disturbance. And as much as we can get to no-till, uh, the better, because then we're we're allowing the soil to build stable aggregates, which means better water infiltration, better water use efficiency, the ability to, for the soil to hold load increases, you know, and over time, better, better yield, more fungal communities in the soil, all those kind of bennies. So it's not just saving on iron costs, anywhere from $35 an acre to $300 an acre, depending on where you live. It's about improving soil function. Okay, so everything is always looked at, not everything, but most people look at the cost savings. And I think if you try to save your way into business, that, that can be problematic. There's, there's cost trading. So when you're reducing tillage inputs, that allows us to allocate uh, funds to other areas in our operation, better irrigation management practices, better nutrition programs like what we do at the Power to Grow production system or other opportunities to invest or reallocate the funds that we had before for improved soil quality and improved yield. So it's um, it's not for the savings. It's for you're, you're going to no-till or strip-till in order to improve soil function. So, yeah, that's essentially, you know, step one that, that people need to look at. Now we get on down the road to all the other steps, which we can – we can go into what that local application is if you want, Kim. Well, I was just, as you were talking about it, I was reminded this weekend over a, a nice uh, uh, bonfire uh, sitting out, out back of our house, 
I was explaining about, you know, these concepts of the soil health and, and we were talking about what tillage does to the soil. And I said, you know, the hurricane that just went through, it is such a devastating example of really what happens when we till. Uh, it's like a hurricane in the soil where when a hurricane goes through, it destroys infrastructure. Mm-hmm. It, it, it kills things. And, um, and then you spend all of this time and resources trying to rebuild that infrastructure. Uh, and so when we do that, it's, it, as you said, it's an allocation of resources that you're deciding where to reallocate. So that's maybe a little uh, simplified example, but to me, that's what it really illustrates. So, Sure, and when you're introducing all that oxygen into the soil, not only are you destroying the, the communities that are there, uh, you're also oxidizing all of the beneficial effects that they've done. So the sugars they've produced, um, the pectin glues that they've produced, all those things were introducing a flush of oxygen. And there's some great research out of Iowa State that I saw, gosh, 20 years ago. And um, it, it showed where most of the carbon release from a tillage event occurs within one hour period of time, which is just will absolutely blow your mind because you would think it'd take much, much longer. Right. And almost all the carbon loss that happens within 48 hours but it's it's 90 percent is in the first hour if i remember correctly 99 mm-hmm. percent over 48 hours so yes it's it's not a oh it's a slow carbon release it's right. it's like setting a fire to a pile of straw that you put diesel fuel on i mean it's it's gone quick right now yeah yeah yeah, yeah it's and whenever you burn up those simple sugars and those simple compounds they never have a chance to, over time, to be assimilated into longer and longer chain carbon compounds to get it down further down to the molecular size of soil humus. So, you know, it may take, let's say, an eight-year period of time or a 10-year period of time to get uh, a simple carbon root exudate complex and, you know, getting into maybe a fulvic acid molecular size to humic acid molecular size all the way to humus molecular size. So if all of a sudden we come in there and till once in that 10 years, gone. And, and you got to start over. So it's, it's, it's the first tillage event is the most devastating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's, just, it, it's just amazing what we've learned about what, what these practices are doing and how we can improve on them. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Well, you started to talk about number two when I so. Well, now you're putting you. me on the spot. I can never remember them in the right order. Well, there really I, is no I, order, I think, uh, isn't the it? The next it's... one's maximizing diversity. So this can come through uh, instead of having tomato, 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 or um, you know just a cereal rye cover crop or corn bean, corn bean, corn bean. Uh, introducing other cash crops, introducing other cover crops in order to dramatically improve the diversity of the crops that are grown on the soil. So that's something that is is important to look at. And uh, Dwayne Beck will talk to us at Ag Emerge about the importance of having a, uh, in his long-term research studies, uh, he's done corn, corn, bean, wheat. Your overall yield winds up being, when you look at a 20-year time horizon, much better than a corn, bean, corn, bean. Mm -hmm. So... uh, there's some considerations to think of there that 
you know, we're, we're typically, as farmers, we're looking at what happened this year, but we're not thinking about the compounding effects and the mm-hmm. cascading effects over, over time um, from rotational decisions that we're making. And plus, if we can have on the cover crop side, that's the easiest way to introduce diversity right. because, you know, uh, you, you can plant anything. It, it can be not in its ideal time frame because you're not harvesting it for seed. You don't have to manage it nearly as intensely because you're not harvesting for seed. So you're looking at just the vegetative properties. So, you know, you can grow sun hemp from India. That's a 150-day plant that you plant in August in and, you know, never bring it to seed, mm-hmm, but you're getting mm-hmm. a, a variety of things. So, you know, and the research um, that was done in, I believe, Germany shows that uh, we want a minimum of eight species to maximize the diversity. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's two species from each of the four functional groups. So two from the grasses, two from the brassicas, two from the legumes, and two from the broadleaves. So mm-hmm. anytime that we can maintain that principle there okay. of the, you know, four two from four fun- functional groups, the more the merrier. If you want to go three from the four functional groups, great. Um, you know, the more we can do those kind of things, uh, that that's great. Now, locally, that those are going to vary. So, you know, sure. in Arizona, we're going to have to have something that's very sal- saline tolerant. In Montana or in Illinois, you're going to have something that's very cold tolerant. So depends on what you want to accomplish at what time of the year. Mm-hmm. But the concept of four functional groups, two species each minimum, is what we want and if you do three great you're you're better and if you do four you're a superhero so you know that's uh that's what we can look at well i think one of the key things that comes out of that diversity and you and i have talked about this before is that the colonies of microbes that get developed as that diversity is introduced if you have three species, you know, then you get an exponential number of, of colonies. Mm-hmm. Um, so and maybe you want to talk just a little bit about that, about how yeah. that works. So two, two species will have three functional groups. So you have a functional group associated with the first crop, a functional group associated with the second crop, and then a functional group of microbes associated between one and two. Mm-hmm. Then when you add the third in, now you're doing, you know, three, one for each species, then you got functional groups between, uh, so there's two more, and then you got one that actually is functional across all three. So then you go to six functional groups with three species. You go to four. Now you're really testing my math, Kim. You yeah, got four. Was, it's like and three, and then yeah. like two and two and one. So you know it starts to exponentially <laughs> right. increase. Uh, right. For those at home, that's if you why get I out let the you paper right it. now <laughs> and put it in a spreadsheet. I'm sure Silas is listening right now. He he's a spreadsheet king. He'll yes. he'll put it on a spreadsheet and, uh, and he'll report back. You know, uh, in the link, I'm sure with uh, how many functional groups we can get at 16. I'm visualizing now, a Venn diagram with exponential. That sounds dangerous. Yes. I, I don't know who Ben is, but... Uh, <laughs> He's a good guy. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> okay, that's good. That's good. Yeah. So, no, but that's great. And I think that's one of the things that when we say we hear diversity all the time, but what does it equal? What what does it mean to the soil, um, to your planning process, all of those type of things? And, and one thing I don't think we went into on the podcast with Keith is another one of the important uh, aspects of cover crops and having all those species in there is let's say we know we want four functional groups, two species each growing, right? Mm-hmm. Well, occasionally you got local conditions or, or local weather event 
where one of those just doesn't, doesn't grow at all. Right. Another one might kind of grow at a third, and you know, some are kind of weak. So if we aren't increasing that mixture, we want eight actively growing <laughs> you know, systems, right? right. So if you kind of shoot for three or shoot for four, you instead of having, if you plant 16, you kind of know you're going to get eight that mm-hmm. are going to work. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a value to overshooting sure. the minimum on there. And the cost is not more. You're not planting right. you know, twice as much seed per acre. You're planting just twice as much variety per acre. Right. And there's a lot of learning that goes on with that variety and that diversity that, that you're observing. And, and, and that, that's been a real uphill climb. Um, and, and Keith Burns and the team at Green Cover Seeds has been excellent at that. But we've, we've put a lot of observation into that in all of our locations. And, um, you know, in the last five years, we've, we've come a long way on those understandings. So uh, we're, we're pretty confident in our recommendations today. On those, at first it was just, hey, let's throw stuff at the wall and see what happens, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and that's what you have to do. Sure. But we, we've got that dialed in pretty good now. I, I'm I'm at in most of our areas ninety percent confidence of what we should be doing ninety ninety five in some. That's exciting. You know, um, at first it was like mm, we don't know. Kind of a, we're just yeah. we're going to do this because it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. well, and that's the exciting thing about it is that you know when you're able to test and try. And and that's really what Mm -hmm. folks are needing to do on their own operations is really just start Mm -hmm. somewhere. But whatever you do, just start. And that's a key point that I thought came out of our Bob Recker podcast. Okay. So, you know, if you have a a thousand acre farm, dedicate 40 acres, 4% of your acres to uh, incremental improvements. And of that 40 acres, have four acres for wild and crazy. Uh, put it in the back corner so nobody sees you, uh, but you still want it accessible so you can see it throughout right. the season. But um, that's another that's another key point is is you, you just sometimes you just don't know you just have to go for it, mm-hmm. and and sometimes you just have a, a a real belly ache and a heartache, but you learn you learn so much more in failures than you do. Mm-hmm. Um, it just if you're gonna fail, just don't fail big. Um, right. And, and that's okay. It's tuition. Yes. You want tuition to um, a smaller school than if you go big, you got tuition to some, somebody calls it dumb something university. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, you don't want to pay a lot of, lot of tuition to the school of hard knocks. Right. But right. some is okay. Yes, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I love the having your, uh, your experiments in the back. That seems to be a common thread is that people uh, are willing to experiment, but they don't tend to do it on the highway. Oh man. I, I was, uh, <laughs> I was looking at a field that we did the soybean intercropping and it was just looking so wonderful and everything was going great and then our harvesting technology was not where it needed to be i was looking at that field yesterday oh oh man what a heartburn and what a mess i mean i've i've got weeds coming through because we clipped the soybeans and they're non-gmo and we didn't have the ability to put herbicide preventatives out so so what did you (laughs) so what did you learn from that though what are the takeaways so we've got different configuration on how we're going to plant next year um we're going to not do three seven and a half inch rows we're going to go to two 10 inch rows with the 20 inch gap which gives us better ability to go to a 20 inch um or 22 inch basic uh poly thing that will keep the soybeans pushed down so they don't come around the nose and get clipped off so that was what was happening is when dad was driving a combine, he had about a two-inch point that he had to perfectly line up with the center of the row to get the bean to go under. Mm. And what happened was, is you know, 
eighty percent of the time it would deflect left or right and it clipped the the mm. growing point on the cutter I bar. I see. Mm-hmm. So uh, we know what we need to to change there, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll make those changes. It's it's still exciting because we were able to to pull off a you know a sixty four bushel wheat yield in the middle of a soybean field. Right. So I mean, sixty four bushel wheat isn't great, but when you're only planting seventy five percent of normal if you'd extrapolate that out that'd be what an 86 bushel wheat yield which isn't too bad for our area you like to see 100 bushel but on the other hand if i can get that and And get a 60 bushel soybean crop now all of a sudden i've got essentially a paid for cover crop and i had zero herbicides in it yes and i have non-gmo beans that i can sell for a dollar 10 premium so there's enough uh incentive there mm-hmm. and, and there's enough benefit to diversity and that's a way we can grow wheat without going broke in this part of the country you know right. you can't can't grow wheat on 10 and twelve thousand dollar an acre ground mm-hmm. you know just that alone you right. have to have some other stacked enterprise on top of it mm-hmm. whether it's soybeans or the grass-fed cattle those kind of things but you when you're looking at that if we can make that system work there's enough extra Go ahead, benefits with the savings and of the herbicide, the soil health improvement versus just soybean stubble, which is real prone to erosion, and improved disease control in the soybeans and improved, you know, just long term. There's there's lots of benefits to keep uh, enduring heartache and belly aches. uh, Looking at that, so. Well, you just uh, have to grow a tough skin for any commentary that might come in about it. Oh, and, no. No uh, one ever tells you directly, <laughs> you know. So <laughs> the good part is if they're talking at the coffee shop, they're leaving somebody else alone. Well, so, there you yeah, go. Yeah. There's always that. So, so anyway. Well, but, but the exciting thing is that it's just interesting. I mean, mm-hmm. there's just... It's so much more fun to be on the learning side of stuff, I think, but maybe I'm just kind of goofy that way. But it, it just keeps your brain sharp. You're thinking about mm-hmm. things, you're moving forward, and you don't get stuck in that rut. So you're mm-hmm. constantly, I mean, there are days when we try to slow you down a little bit, but uh, for the most part, it's a fun ride to figure out <laughs> these new and different ways. So, that, so that's exciting. So, well, that was, we kind of got into number two at length, but what's what's the next one that's on your list? Well, the third one, um, soil health principle is, uh, and I just read an interesting article this morning about this, is keeping the ground covered. So mm-hmm. keeping the, the residues on the surface, whether it's green residues or, you know, previous crop residues. And in this article, they were comparing different people's kind of recommendations. What does this, a couple different organizations say, and one was Chico State, and how does mm-hmm. it align with uh, Gabe Brown was one of them, and there was a couple others. I, I didn't recognize their names because in regenerative ag, everybody's looking for a definition. Right. Um, and I get a kick out of people who are saying, oh, yeah, I'm regenerative, and it's like they're as conventional as conventional can be. So, mm-hmm. I mean, there's some, you know, name hijacking going on mm-hmm. and those kind of things, which are somewhat frustrating. So how do you define something that isn't defined by practice? Right. Right. Mm-hmm. We're defining it by principle. Yes. So that's the... Sticky wicket. Yeah, that, that's the mess. <laughs> so organic is definable, right? But it's not sure. necessarily the best. So essentially organic, what you're doing with an organic system is you're just substituting inputs. The practices mm-hmm. are nearly the same as conventional mm-hmm. farming. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's more tillage because your weed you control options weeds. are less. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's ex- there, But there's more diversity, so that's good. 
But essentially, uh, you're still doing fertilizer. It's just manures or seaweed, fish, those kind of things instead of synthetics. Mm -hmm. You're still doing pesticides. You know, there's organic pesticides instead of synthetics. So there is a whole lot of um, change. It's it's one step maybe in the right direction, soil health-wise, but there's also a couple of steps backwards soil health-wise. So that's interesting. But regenerative is is different because organic, one time someone told me it's a list of no's. Mm-hmm. It's not a list of what's best. Right. It's a list of, no, you can't do this. No, you can't do that. No, 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 no. It's not today's organic. I think when organic originally started, it started as a vision for a different way of farming. Mm-hmm. Today, it's it's standardized in a list of what you can't do. And I think the difference with regenerative is, is by focusing on the five soil health principles, we're trying to develop what is best, not what you can't do. Right. Okay. Because right. even in the organic world, if we could add some synthetic nitrogen to the system, it would be better because we're we're out of balance in our phosphorus and potassium ratio because we're putting on so many manures, mm-hmm. we're overloading phosphorus and we're overloading potassium in these soils and actually inducing micronutrient deficiencies. Problems, yeah. Where if we could put on 40 units of nitrogen along of synthetic, along with manures, for example, and uh, there's a researcher in Salinas that's talked about this for quite some time. If we could just do a little bit of that, that would bring everything into balance and actually create a healthier soil and a healthier food product. Mm-hmm. But it's a list of no's. It's not right. a list of best practices. Right. You know, and we've been on the we've been on the, the kick for a long time. Incorporate compost into your system, absolutely. But know that when you're minimum tilling, we need nitrogen up front because the compost isn't kicking in. The cover crops are tying it up. The residues are tying it up. We're starving that plant early on. So, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're an advocate for those best management practices. They just don't fall under a organic, organic label, label or mm-hmm. there isn't a regenerative label. So that's the problem with labels is they're restrictive. Um, there needs to be a way to come up with, and I bet there will be a podcast about this, uh, needs to be a way to come up with assigning values of how close within a given environment a farmer is able to achieve the five soil health principles. So that's how you do regenerative farming certification. Cool. Is within their own local context, are they doing the best known practices today? And if they are, they get 100 points. If they're doing, you know, something that's a little bit less, they get 80 points, Mm -hmm. whatever, Mm -hmm. as an example. But then that falls into an open ledger blockchain, which they can follow and trace that case of fruit that box of almonds, you know, that pallet of tomato paste, you know, that tanker of milk, all the way through to the shelf. And then with an app on your phone, you can scan the barcode and you know, hey, that scores 89 uh, on a regenerative ag score. And you scan this one, that scores 70. And if you want to make as a consumer a difference in soil and environment, you pick that one that's 89. Yes. Yes, yes. You know, and then the other thing is, uh, you know, the next iteration of that is is artificial intelligence where all of that is known and we know that this 70 point is $2 and this 89 point is $10. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's mm-hmm. not worth five times as much to get the 89 points. We're going to, you know, based on my family's budgets and des- desires, we'll, we'll choose the 70. But all of a sudden, 
if if the farmer has the feedback that hey that decision maybe would have been made had you been at a two x price point, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and a farmer has that feedback and he's Those then he's like ah hey I can if I produce this at a lower cost point and I could hit this much more of a market mm-hmm. therefore I need to scale up and mm-hmm. he can have that data feedback loop direct from the consumer yes that all changes so. Blockchain, artificial intelligence are going to be two key emerging technologies that are going to enable this connection between the consumer and the soil to really drive regenerative ag forward. Because regenerative ag doesn't need to be a list of no's like organic. Regenerative ag doesn't need to be a political decision from Washington. Lord help us. It needs to be giving the consumer the power to vote. Absolutely, and they're not going to need. They're not going to be able to know everything there is to know about everything. They don't have the consumer doesn't have the time for that. No, but if they can plug into a rating system that would automatically choose based on what their preferences are today, and those preferences will change as you know, family is married, they have different ideas, and when they have small kids versus older kids, as we move, you know, uh, through different transitions in their life. That'd be interesting. Yes, that is so real to me because, you know, my husband and I, we love to travel on a, like, we have champagne tastes and a beer budget. So we use a travel app that rates hotels that we know what star they are, Mm -hmm. but also we know their consumer star. Hmm. So even though the star... So then you're basically paying a dollar per consumer rating, right, ever. So if you... Yeah, you know this one is uh, whatever thirty dollars per star per night, and this one's twenty eight dollars per star per night, right? Exactly, exactly. And so, but I can stay in a four star hotel. I can get a discount, but but I can play the. I know where my best bet is, where I'm going to get a clean room. I'm going to get, I mean, I have all these criteria, just like a consumer would have buying Mm -hmm. food. I have these criteria. It tells me based off of what I'm looking for, if it meets those criteria with Mm -hmm. a rating, just like you said, outside Mm -hmm. of the star rating, but actually a Mm -hmm. customer rating. And then I, and, and I'll tell you, through experience over the years, we found it to be accurate. Mm-hmm. And then we have a pleasant experience every time. Mm-hmm. And that's exciting as a consumer to have that data available to mm-hmm. you. And it's a, I can save money. Mm-hmm. So, cause we like to sleep in a nice clean place, but it doesn't have to be fancy, but we like to eat really well. So... <laughs> We take our lodging money and put that in for a nice meal. But my point being that from a consumer standpoint, that kind of information is excellent. And as, you know, as I age and I'm looking at my health and my diet, um, those things become more important it to changes. me. Yep. It It just does. And, and to populate that blockchain, uh, the information's, if it's garbage in, it's garbage out. Right. right. So... That's going to require a whole array of, of, of machine learning and sensors mm-hmm. technology on the front end of everything that happened to populate that. So, right. I mean, it, it's, it's going to require sensor technology, blockchain, and decision-making capabilities mm-hmm. in order for, for that all to come together. So that's that, that's that the vision of Ag Emerge is regenerative agriculture being enabled by emerging technologies. Right. And I... I I just, that is so crystal clear to me, mm-hmm. um, and, and I, I see it happening. It's just a matter of when, not right. if. Right. So uh, we're going to, we're gonna. that's why we created it, is throw all these people together in the same room and say, hey, this is the vision. 
you all got to figure it out. Right. Because exactly. it's above and beyond, it's above and beyond our, our role, right? But our, our role but... is to come up with the right cropping plan uh, to, to meet the five soil health principles and stuff. But mm-hmm. then if we can put all these other emerging companies and, and thought leaders together to create the value stream for our farmers downstream to exactly. be able to bring more of those dollars back to the farm instead yeah. of 8%. Why don't we have 25% back at the farm exactly, and, and make a real difference in, in rural uh, quality of life and, and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I, that, that's a, exciting. We, we took a big, big uh, right turn yeah, there sorry. off of residues. Uh, yes. Went from, Please head back. Know, but on, on the residues, one of the things <laughs> I found that was interesting on the Chico State thing is that was not checked. They don't concur with residues. And when you're in an environment like Chico State, which is north of Sacramento, you're, you're going to have you know, still have direct sunlight and high UV rays and, and those kind of things that are going to negatively impact the soil. But I, I think that's lacking in the leadership. We need residues on the soil surface, even though we are producing vegetables. We don't need to be killing our soil to meet food safety regulations. We need to be able to have uh, adaptable food safety regulations and residues that are soil, that are safe for the for the crop that we're growing. So... You know, that was one thing I disagree. That's that mm-hmm. stood out to me in that article. And, and if you don't keep your soils covered, you can do these other things. Forget it. it. It's going to yeah. blow away. It's going to radiate. It's going to overheat. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it's just it's not good. Just you the temperature differences that we see. Um, you know, if you don't have one, get a thermometer, get your soil temps, and and look at them because it is crazy what yeah. the differences and and the things are going on. But I think they're fifty bucks. You can get at any farm store. It's got a little laser yeah. on the end. You shoot it at the at the surface, and it's it's awesome. So. Yeah, and it's a fun way to get out in the field and see what's going on. But it, right. it really illustrates uh, what's happening. Well, let's see. Let's talk about maybe the fourth one, Kim, and I'll make it all the way to robotics or something crazy. Okay. Sounds I, I, good. I don't know good. what that is. So, but anyway, um, I'm trying to think. I know fifth one's my favorite. I'm trying to <laughs> re- refresh me here real quick, Kim. Oh, what well, have I missed? We've talked about residues. We talked about uh, diversity of crops. The living root. Ah, living root. See, oh, Kim, see? do I get are, a gold star? Oh, you get two gold attention. stars right there. So, living root. We want to be pumping photosynthates into the soil as much as time will allow. So, if you're in an area of the country that goes dormant because of cold temperatures, that's fine. But anytime it's you know above 32, we want a crop that's pumping carbohydrates into the ground. And if we're somewhere else that can grow something year-round, you know, California, Arizona, Texas, all the, the southern states, we want that to happen. So species selection is important to to be pumping as not only a living root all the time, but pumping in as much as we can all the time. So a vegetative state, high biomass crops that are just feeding the microbe really? community under the soil, making them rock and roll. Mm-hmm. So. That's exciting, and that diversity helps with that. Um, and and I've had people ask me, well, what does that mean when you say have a living root when you're already saying keep the ground covered? And you summed it up. It's capturing that sunlight, getting it pumped down into the. And I think in a lot of areas and a lot of crops, we need to think about. Um, there's opportunities within crop that we don't have living roots. So when we have. Um, a lot of the monocrops. So if, if you go to, um, not monocrops, I'm sorry, grass crops, if, if you look at wheat or corn, for example, once they head, the amount of root exudate flow to the roots is next to nothing. Mm-hmm. And then once they mature, 
it's done. So, I mean, between maturity and harvest, sometimes it's 30 days where there was nothing going on. And the 30 days prior to that was very minimal, minimal going on. So there's there's a 60-day window that we should be t- looking at. How mm-hmm. do you make that happen? Sure. That's where intercropping comes in, companion cropping, interseeding, a lot of terms there. Uh, but there's a lot of opportunity for everybody that 60-day cycle. You know, and on almonds, for example, 30, 45 days from whole split until harvest, there isn't a lot going on with root exudates in the soil. You know, tomatoes, they're they're pumping out pretty close to the end. The last 10 days, they start harden off, so there isn't a lot to gain there. But there's there's some other other crops out there where we can be gaining. Or in crops, when we do the relay cropping type of thing or we do the companion cropping, we can have a high biomass cover crop growing while the infant stage cash crop is starting. Because when you, when you think about a little baby lettuce plant or a little baby corn plant, there's nothing going on soil-wise for that first 45 days of that plant on corn, for example. So from seeding until 45 days, there's nothing. And then we got 60 days on the back end. There's 105 days. You know, when, when, when you look at it, there's about, you know, two months of really good things going on in a corn crop. We got a lot of time mm-hmm. that we could uh, really get creative on, on what we're doing there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's so that's a very, I would say of all the soil health principles, that one is people are doing cover crops that they plant after the harvested cash crop and not doing much before planting the cash crop or or during the early growth phase the cash crop i would say that's the one area of the forest soil health principles that has the greatest opportunity for practice improvement Mm -hmm. and that's going to take some serious equipment technology to make that happen but it will because it's very valuable because that's also a way to dramatically reduce synthetic nitrogen inputs is from having leguminous crops and and those kind of things it's a dramatic way to reduce uh, nematicides and and other soil-borne disease prevention techniques by using plants to do that. Mm-hmm. So That's there's exciting. a lot of opportunity on that one. Yeah. And that one we've just scratched the surface on in practices. And I think Tom Cotter, when he's out at Ag Emerge, he's going to scratch more on that one mm-hmm. as far as what he's done at his farm for intercropping, companion cropping, and those kind of things. Well, it's the one that has probably the most opportunity, also the one that's maybe almost the scariest. No, it's hard. Yeah. You know, uh, my dad, uh, I, I just, I got to tell this all the time, but, you know, when we were building our interseeder, he said, all these years I've been trying to kill weeds in my crop, and now you're going to plant weeds. So we call it our interweeder seeder. So, uh, or interseeder weeder or something like that at the farm Orion came up with. So it's kind of, uh, it's kind of fun to think, but I, I, that that's what started just that comment from my dad is what started my thinking yes. as far as if I don't plant the weeds I want, nature will send the weeds she wants, that's right. and I would much rather control what I plant versus what she sends yes. because she sends water hemp, Palmer amaranth, you know, giant ragweed, all these nasty ones. She right. sends kochia in western Kansas. I, I swear Roundup is a foliar feed for kochia anymore. So uh, there's a lot of opportunity to prevent what we don't want. 
instead of getting into a big hairy field of kosher in western Kansas that's eating up all the water. And then what do we do? We go back to the old blade uh, cultivators to undercut them all. We bury our residue. It blows away. We waste water. There is, it's a downward spiral. And guys are so worried about wasting a few inches of water to grow a cover crop. But by not doing it, they're wasting a foot of water growing weeds and, and burying residue and, and sending their soil east. And I, I just, that just bugs me to death. But there's so much research now that supports um, understanding what that cover, what that right cover crop does mm-hmm. in those states that are struggling, you know, with conserving water and, you know, and utilizing water. And that's a perfect opportunity right there for that 40 acre trial. Exactly. You know, go out on some dry land, try a quarter of a quarter. Right. Okay. Go on to a pivot, try a quarter of a pivot, start working with it and just really then get your, get out of your truck, get your probe out and just see what the water depth exactly. is at the end of it. Don't, mm-hmm. and don't let your cover crop grow up to a 10 foot tall mess, right. you know, kill right. it by the time it's 18 inches tall. So you're not wasting a lot of water. And, and just watch what happens for the weed suppression and watch what happens for, you know, soil savings. And, and then, then run the probe and see. And you'll notice there's hardly no difference in it. And you'll fall in love with the weed control. Yes. And you'll fall in love with the uh, soil savings, especially on those 50-mile-an-hour windy days. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that if we can just uh, – that's a drum I'd like to beat a while. I mean, it's just a good message. And, you know – I think of the Tom Cotter podcast where he talked about, you know, we don't look at weeds like how can we kill them? We look at why are they there? And you said, you know, you want to plant what need, you know, what you want growing there because sure. mother nature will send it because it is a, a weed is a response to something that's mm-hmm. happening. Yeah. So, yeah, that's exciting. Okay. I know you're chomping at the well, bit to get to number five. Well, the fifth is integrating favorite. livestock and everybody should do that. And we'll have a whole podcast on that. Okay. Time. How's that sound? Yeah, but well, it can be done anywhere at any time. I think that's another one that, um, uh, certainly there's a lot of thinking going into more so than number four, but, um, not being done a lot. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. honestly, once you integrate livestock, It'll double everything that you'd ever accomplish in one through four. Isn't that amazing? It's it just crazy blows your mind. So if we're gonna save it for another podcast, give us a little teaser. What is the coolest thing that you've learned from integrating livestock on your? Uh, does one does one thing like really pop out that I have you've never like, been? Holy I have never had the mental capability. I don't know what it is. I, I go to you know, a, a church retreat, or you go to a leadership meeting, or you go to something and say, what is the one thing? Or, you know, <laughs> here, write down on this card, in the next three minutes, the three goals you want to accomplish for the rest of your life, and I'm just dumbfounded. I can never answer those questions, and it just frustrates me. So I apologize. I There's do not no have cover the capability. crop answer like the standard church answer Okay, Jesus, so I don't, so. I, yeah, I don't think in silos. Uh, oh, sure, I think sure. in systems. Yes. So... I don't look at one things. I, I yeah. look at how just everything goes together. So, you know, I see people working on our farm that just never would have had the opportunity. Mm-hmm. I see um, we've, we've hosted a, a tour a month. So we've, we've interacted with 180 people from town mm-hmm. that has just never been on a farm. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. now they have a really different appreciation for what we're doing as farmers and and 
they're happy that we're trying to heal them instead of kill them, you know, because they think we're out there trying to kill people today. That's yeah. the perception. Which is not. Like it or not. Yeah. You know, as a farmer, you can sit here and hear that and be like, rah, 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 you know, that's what they think. It doesn't matter that it's wrong. It's right. what they think. Perception so, is reality. You know, we have right? to change the perception, not not right. argue with it on Twitter. Right. And then the other thing is, um, you know, I just see the, the land. I, I see the, the animals, uh, how they behave, and, and more what would be instinctual. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just, just lots of things. You know, when you move the chicken tractor and you see five days later the grass i was driving around last night out that ranch and i holy smokes where the chickens were versus where just the cattle were seeing the difference in the grass recovery let alone just seeing how beautiful job the cattle did in recovering crp land um there's just a myriad of things there so that that's that's for another topic uh just bear with me folks uh it is worth it and we're really trying to figure out ways the whole project at our farm is to find out ways for larger scale customers right to integrate livestock on their land without having to, uh, you know, l- learn everything from scratch. Exactly. We're trying to learn everything from scratch so we can coach you and save you five, ten years on the startup process and make it less yes. labor-intensive and yes. create a market for you to uh, be able to uh, market your uh, products that you raise on your own farm direct to consumer. So that's the big vision of bringing livestock back to the land. So, um, Yeah more for later on that one. Yeah. But I know there are some things you wanted to get into about the Strip-Till Conference and the Farm Progress Show and, and those kind of things, so I don't want to yeah, no, uh, be labor here too long. No, so. you're not at all. That's good. It's exciting um, because we were, um, you know, we were able to do some of these things this summer and hit a few of these events. And at the Strip-Till Conference, you know, we had a lot of different conversations. Um, it was an interesting um, a conference for me to attend. And I guess... Just from the standpoint of me looking at it, can you talk a little bit about uh, what strip till means in a regen world, in a regen ag world? What 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 does that look like, and what you know? We've just talked about how no till or not disturbing the soil is. So at the strip till conference, uh, tell me like the demographics of the folks that were there, and then uh, go into the the regen. I, I mean, of who uses strip till and. Sure. So uh, I don't know all of the demographics that were there, but the National Strip-Till Conference isn't very national. Okay. (laughs) Okay. It's um, more Eastern Corn Belt focused. So I would say majority of the people who are there are running uh, coulter type uh, strip-till units instead of shank style strip-till units. And I would say the people who are putting on ammonia in the fall in the Eastern Corn Belt and then planting over top of the ammonia strips, which is essentially kind of a mini strip till, they weren't there at all. So okay, okay, uh, okay. They're just they're they're kind of they're quasi no tillers, but they're really kind of strip till. So you know, okay. To me, no till means no till. So the the only Correct. thing that disturbs the soil is the planter. Yes. You know, but um, anhydrous bar planting over top that's no till, even <laughs> though you see it washing out hillsides where they go up and down and. Yeah, another story. But so a lot of it's a colder-driven thing, and then you do have some Western Corn Belt people there that have the shank-style units. So if you look at about the Nebraska-Iowa border, that's where we convert from largely colter-style units to shank-style units. Now, obviously, Coon Krause runs in Ohio, and obviously an environmental tillage systems runs in Wyoming, 
you know, so there's there's overlap by by all means. But what happens as we move further and further west, as rainfall decreases, our ability to leach salts within the soil decreases. Uh, our consolidation of the soil at depth is greater um, because of dispersion action of salts. Therefore, shank-style units like Orthman, Kuhn Kraus, uh, those kind of units tend to really shine in the west. And because we have wetter soils and we're always fighting wetness in the fall and the spring and just really need to create an ideal seed bed, we don't really need that tillage at depth. The colder style units, such as a, a, a Vulcan, a environmental tillage systems, a Don Pluribus, those kind of things that just have turning disc colders mm -hmm. and doodads, mm -hmm. uh, tend to be more in the east. So they, they tend to run through Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio. And that's because when you stick a shank into very wet soil, it's like a cheese slicer. Okay, sure. you create a slice, it dries out, and you've got that mess for a long time. Right. So, but in the West, where we don't have that intensity of rain, mm -hmm. the the this the shank gives us really nice shatter properties, and while we're still creating wavy colders in the back to create the seed beds. So that's the primary difference between those two things. So, when I originally got involved with strip tillage in California, was as a way to um, well, it'd be um, Nicoderm CQ for tillage. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> gotcha. had all these addicted tillage folks and strip tills a way to come off the addiction. So in California, instead of the 10, 11 tillage passes, we went to strip till where we're tilling a zone because we still had compaction from harvest activities. We still had residue management problems. We still had uh, consolidation of soils because of gravity irrigation and or salinity management issues. So strip tillage allowed us to address those. We'd strip till, irrigate, freshen the strip, plant. That's what we do today. It's our standard practice. Mm -hmm. My vision was always strip till the corn first, let them go ahead and do their full-scale tillage after corn going to wheat, and then come back and strip till. So we've, we've eliminated, you know, seven or eight passes. Then the next step was to minimize the deep tillage ahead of the wheat and get to no-till wheat. And that, that took some time to get the right equipment technology there. We did not, I was not successful at doing that personally. But now uh, the California Ag Solutions team, uh, led by Carrie and Silas on that, have really pushed uh, that envelope, and they are doing no-till wheat now. And it is better. It's higher yielding. It's a little bit shorter stature. It doesn't blow over. It's higher nutritional quality. Mm. All those benefits that, you know, everybody growing wheat, no-till has known for a long time in other parts of the world. Sure. But, of course, that don't apply when you cross the Sierra Nevada. <laughs> so, anyway, so it's good to see that now. And then once we get there, the soil will be able to heal and regenerate itself, have higher load building capacity or load carrying capacity to where it can go ahead then and go to no-till corn. And they're starting to do that today in order to, you know, see how those things will will work out for no-till corn. So that, that's Excellent. pretty exciting. Yeah. So that's kind of the progression. I really see strip-till as a transition. Mm -hmm. If you strip-till because you strip-till forever, um, you've got something going on irrigation-wise, salinity management-wise, or harvest impact-wise. Okay. Um, but on the other hand, there is one thing that strip-till does that no-till cannot do at this time, and that is the placement of nutrients below the soil surface. So we can put a small amount of nutrition on 
uh, with the planter as we're going mm-hmm. through the field. Mm-hmm. But I think that is one thing that strip-till does today that no-till can't is maintenance level P and K, especially P because it's not mobile. So either we have to add our pro-additive to liquid nutrition and move it through the soil, or if you're putting on 1152 or 18460, needs to be put on at depth behind a shank to get it in the ground. Otherwise, in a no-till system, you risk, you know, sending it down the river right. or, or not having access to the plant, you know, within the moistened mm-hmm. area of the of the soil profile. Mm-hmm. So that's that's one advantage that there there really hasn't been a uh, something to overcome that yet, but I, I think there can be pretty easily. And I think. You know, National Strip-Till Conference is, is gaining some traction. I've come to the conclusion it's a it's a problem between the No-Till Conference, which has large attendance, versus the Strip-Till Conference. No-Till Conference is a, it's more of a system um, principled conference, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where Strip-Till is more of a practice conference. I see. People don't get excited about practices. They get more excited about principles. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the no-till conference, I, I, I almost jokingly said five, eight years ago, I said, they got this name wrong. This is the cover crop conference, you know, because <laughs> everything yes. was cover crop, cover crop, Certainly. cover crop. And yes. uh, so maybe someday we'll be able to name it the Livestock Grazing Conference, Kim. You never know. But, there you uh, go. That I would be it. exciting for you, wouldn't But anyway, it? that's the main. I had a fun presentation there. Uh, the room was packed. We had a lot of great interaction. Uh, I still get comments today about me circling on the cows. Uh, so I wanted where, you where to talk a little bit at, about that. Where the feeder yeah. at yeah. and where the uh, manure applicator is at. That's and correct. People are still joking around with me about that, uh, yes. that they, they got a kick out of that. Yes, so, so that was good. I don't and, know and if they learned anything or if it helped them any, but at least they were they were duly entertained. I think it was a good uh, realization that those livestock are doing uh, some uh, pretty uh, uh, multitasking uh, activities yeah. so uh yet again another tease for the livestock sure. uh, we'll go into but that it, detail. it was a principled vase uh, presentation yes not a you know we're doing strip tone in california for this reason but here's the principles behind right. it and right. um i think that you know the people wanted to hear that but i i don't think it fit in the it was square peg and a round hole problem with the strip tail conference so Sure. I'm going to have to talk to Jack. I notice he hasn't done a follow-up article on my presentation, so it must have completely bombed. Oh man! So well, I, you know, I'm I don't feeling know. really bad. Uh, you know, Tom. Everybody else has had follow-up articles, but uh, I, I think that I must have made Jack mad. I'll have to give him a call. I, I doubt that, but he, uh, he was laughing on the side. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. So, well, that was kind of exciting. And then, and then you headed off to the uh, Farm Progress Show. Yeah, I went there with my farmer hat on. Um, I had incognito. Uh, yep. I had uh, I and plus at the Farm Progress show, you can drive a golf cart through there. It is the greatest thing to have 110 acres. Kim, we're not going to tell that story. I've heard uh, <laughs> I'm over here with like looking like the cat that ate the canary. But... Okay, so 2 years ago, somehow the key <laughs> fell out of my pocket for my golf cart. And uh, I, I must have missed my pocket when I was putting it in, and it went into the wood chips at the Case IH booth, never to be found again. Go to so, the farm show, Kim. So, they yeah. say, it'll be great, they say, get a golf cart. Yeah, so I had the privilege <laughs> of pushing uh, my golf cart out of the Farm Progress show after hours by hand uh, up into the parking lot. So I wasn't was... going to tell that story, but I'll let you tell <coughs> it on yourself. Late. But at yeah. any rate, uh, um, you can cover so a lot now, of ground. So now there's no key on there. Uh, my dad uh, just put a switch 
on there. He knows God how I am. We yep, we didn't replace it with a key. That and, was uh, our mistake is that we gave you the key. Yeah, we exactly. Yes. So uh, now now I can't lose a key. But uh, the, So it's fun driving around this. Right, and right. when I go to those Farm Progress shows, if I drive by John Deere, honestly, I don't stop. Because at John Deere... We get a you know an email news feed every day. You get a press release about what they're doing, or if you want to know what Deere's doing, you know. I mean, or any big company, sure. Uh, Yetter, three sixty Farm Center, all those kind of things. So when I'm driving around, I'm looking for the weird. Okay, gotcha. Because um, they're there, and, and typically in a varied industries tent or a small tent that's mm-hmm. just not well identified. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm kind of creeping up and down the uh, roads looking for okay, who's weird here. Because the weird aren't going to be in all the magazines or all the emails right. and stuff. Because right. I can I can always read that at home. You know, I don't know need to talk to the guy about a Morton building. Right. Okay. Right. I, I know you can do that. They got to come out to my site. Great. Sure. You know. So uh, there were some interesting things there, and one of the things that that really stood out to me um, there were there were several stops I made, but there was more activity in the uh, cropping and soil stewardship booth than ever before. They had a soil pit there. A lot of people through there. It's really interesting to see uh, the power of social media. When I was walking through all those different booths, um, I would say there was probably nine agencies in there on soil health-related topics, and half of them knew me. It's kind of weird when they know you and you don't know them, but they you know, are creeping on you on, on social media, watching videos and this mm-hmm. podcast and things like that. So you know, what you're saying, even though it may not get feedback immediately, uh, is being heard. So that's that's kind of reassuring. Uh, another booth that stood out to me was toward the end of the day, I got to meet with the folks at Smart Ag, and they have developed the autonomous uh, uh, tractor. Uh, it's a driverless tractor, follows alongside of a combine to catch grain as it's coming out. So, I mean, that can have application to a tomato harvester, forage chopper, any of those kind of things. And they're they're moving right along, and they've done it. And this is a kid out of Iowa State University. They've been at it for three years, and they got uh, something that's just working great. So we had a follow-up meeting with Colin Hurd. Uh, he came here to the Quad Cities and uh, visited with him a little bit. And it's it's really interesting to see the, the progress that they're making. It looks like he'll be going to market here here shortly with that product. Uh, next year should be fairly well available. That's exciting. And uh, it, it's a fantastic opportunity because any time that we can take those simple tasks uh, and automate them, now, all of a sudden, it's cheaper to have maybe two 20-foot widgets instead of one 90-foot widget, mm-hmm. you know, or, mm-hmm. or let, let robots drive them 24-7. They mm-hmm. don't need a break. They show up. It's, uh, uh, there's a lot of, lot of opportunities uh, to integrate automation and robotics into agriculture. Mm-hmm. And, and Smart Ag's doing a really nice job. And, uh, and Colin was a really neat guy to meet. He, his story was he knew there was a farmer up in... Ontario, that this was such a problem. He actually taught himself how to program, bought all these uh, different printed circuit boards, wired it all together for him to have a homemade auger cart. And I remember reading that article four years ago or so. And Colin said, if there's a farmer who's willing to go through all of that, this is a strong enough pain that we need to pursue it. Yes. So he's uh, he, he's done a nice job there. Yeah. And there was a, one other uh, highlight that was there. I mean, there are several others that sure. we can talk about in another time, but another one was Indigo Ag. Um, mm-hmm. They're another startup company that's uh, making waves and, and they're rewarding regenerative ag practices. We need to have a conversation with him sometime. 
but uh, basically, if you're doing good practices, it's uh, worth anywhere from fifteen to thirty dollars an acre in the carbon trading market. Uh, and they'll go back in time five years if you've been mm-hmm. doing good practices mm-hmm. um, to connect you with the carbon market. Now, obviously, they're selling those carbon credits for sixty to ninety dollars a ton, paying you fifteen, but. It's 15 that, that you, you never have. had before. Right. And I don't know how many people listening to the podcast are actively out there seeking people to buy their carbon credits. Right. You know, it's not enough dollars to have a, a crew of people invested in that. And it's and it's encouraging and rewarding good behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, they're kind of, uh, they, they do different things from uh, grain marketing to sensing and this regenerative ag uh, soil carbon credits. So they're, it's kind of... Um, they're a startup looking for a place, in, in my opinion. It's kind of somewhat fragmented there, but uh, they're, they're coming together. They're testing the waters, and they're, and they're making good progress. One of the things that was interesting is they're, and it just appeared on the mainstream uh, ag media here, but their prediction for the national corn yield was something like uh, 10% less than what the USDA says, and their acres is something like 6% less. So, yeah, everybody... Uh, that has seen the commodity reports this year um, knows that uh, it's some fake news. There's that's for a sure. Commentary <laughs> yeah. about it. That's that's for sure. Well, I know we're running long on time here, so we better wrap it up. But I mean, that's kind of some thoughts uh, on the Strip Till Conference and the and the Farm Progress Show and and those kind of things. Any anything else you wanted me to to chit pat about or chit chat about or no. anything that uh, that you had on your mind that you wanted to share with folks? No, I just appreciate getting the chance to talk about it. I think these are important things, uh, stuff that we kind of wanted to summarize or just talk a little bit about and see what was going on. And so I thought that was important to do. We'll look forward to uh, seeing you at the Aggie Merge event. So that's an exciting thing we could do too. And if you would, in the comments, um, take some time and, and write what you agree with, what you disagree with, and what we've said. But then also maybe some things you want us on these um, offline things where you want us to comment on or, or things that you want us to add to the discussion. That'd be great. I think it'd be a lot of fun to, to do that. But there's a lot of exciting speakers we've already got lined up that are plugging all into this vision of bringing you know, animals back to the land and also bringing a regenerative agriculture practices together with modern emerging technologies and maximizing the profit potential for farms and everyone in the value chain. So I look forward to seeing you in January in Monterey, California. Um, go to agemerge.com, register today. There's a good uh, discount on registering early. And we look forward to seeing you there and, and having a great discussion and, and sending you back home. Uh, rewarded, refreshed, and and ready to uh, be part of the changing ag paradigm.